Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Harry, which Christmas leftovers are bringing January joy? Well, I've got I've got three a bag three tubes of leftovers. Um, I've got twiglets, mini twiglets, oven baked, not fried. Dan, that's important yeah. to remember, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, I've got uh, I've also got some cheese footballs. Oh yes. Um, the winning snack at home or away. <laughs> I should say that the, the the cheese football for people who don't know them that the outside of it is a kind of wafer biscuit. It's basically like an ice cream cone. And then it's filled with some substance, which I think is fantastic. But my daughter actually spat out when she had to say, what is this? What is this? She said. Um, anyway, and then also I've got, which is my favourite of all. There's actually nothing left. I'm, I'm shaking it. I'm shaking the drum because there's nothing left in it, which is mini cheddar nibblies, cheddar oh, yeah. and smoked paprika flavour. I think finally done my quest to find a replacement snack for the mini cheddar's Branston pickle flavour. Is over. It's over, yeah. A nation breathes easy. <laughs> <laughs> I had the same at Christmas, actually. Very it crunchy, is, aren't they? Very, they're really can't nice, get away with they? them as a secret snack. They're, 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 no, you can't, but they're very, I like those a lot. And then I noticed that also, because they're the Christmas the Christmas tubes, or whatever you would call them, that they've got all sorts of Christmas suggestions. One is ideas for reusing your empty drum. Make it into a Christmas roller, a barrel of laughs. And all you do is basically cut strips and put some terrible jokes in, in them. Oh. And it says, cut eight strips of paper, the height of the drum, about two centimetres wide, brackets, ask an adult to help with this part. <laughs> Sadly, no adults available for me, so I've had to, I've not, I've not done it. But anyway, so that's what I've got done. But I, rec- I can heartily recommend the uh, the cheddar or whatever they're called. Nibbles. Yeah, yeah, same here. And uh, the, on the cheese football front, I'm a big fan as well. Just a bit too small to be a replacement Sbutio football, aren't they? Just a they are, but you could make a small. goal with the mini twiglets. Yeah, couldn't you? you could fashion a goal from the mini twiglets and then flick i don't know you'd have to find maybe a gingerbread man or something a jelly baby maybe that would be about the right that would be about the right um proportional size of the subutio to the ball wouldn't it anyway there we are you could do that and never never mind never mind making a christmas roller it's a barrel of laughs you could just do that instead why haven't they thought of that i ask you i know i know the other thing that i did when i went to buy these i bought them in b&m but i noticed when i was packing i had a bag for life and my bag for life was from waitrose and it, i was a bit i felt a bit bad you know putting my b&m stuff in a waitrose bag for life is so, reminding me when i used to work in the wine trade we used to sell we used to sell this sherry in the wood and you could just it was in a barrel and people could bring a bottle in and they always brought like a Harvey's Bristle cream bottle and filled it with this <laughs> sherry that was from Panama or wherever it was from. And I felt a bit like that with my with my waitress bag for life filled with B&M um, mini cheddar nibblies. <laughs> um, what else did the Northumbrian festive season bring? Well, excitingly, on Boxing Day, my, my daughter got a, got a, a text from her friend Charlie, who's a, who listens to this podcast. He's probably our youngest listener, <laughs> I suspect. Um, and he said, he, I'm, sharing, I'm spending Boxing Day with Keith Dyson. Ask your dad. Wow. So, of course, she asked me about that. And I said, well, that's a coincidence, because, of course, we were talking about Tony Green at Newcastle United. And Keith Dyson was a Newcastle player, and he was... Uh, part of the deal that took Tony Green ah. to to Newcastle, and, and Keith Dyson went to Blackpool. And he, so was I said to my daughter, if, if, he was the make He was the make weight. I was going to say that. I was going to to Keith. He was the make weight. That's why I didn't use the make weight term. I nearly used it, but I thought, well, what if Keith hears of it? You know, from Charlie. I don't want to be the person who called him a make weight. So anyway, so I said, so I said to my daughter, ask Charlie what he says about Tony Green, and and Keith Dyson said 
that he was basically, he felt he'd been kidnapped. He was sort of kidnapped. He was only a young lad and he was sort of bundled into a car by Joe Harvey and driven to Blackpool and put in a room with a piece of paper and told to sign it. A bit like sort of the way that special branch used to get confessions out of people in those <laughs> days, wasn't it? Um, and so it was to, and he didn't want to sign for Blackpool. And he said he wanted to phone his mum and dad up to get their advice. But his mum and dad, I think he's from concert. Well, that, that's really irrelevant. But his mum and dad didn't have a didn't have a telephone. And he said the only person in the street who had a phone was the midwife. So he literally called the midwife. And I don't know what I don't know what advice she gave him. Maybe she sort she obviously because he signed for Blackpool, so presumably said, it's a good setup at Bloomfield Road, you'll be very happy there, Keith. Um and he spent five years there. Um until his, his career was actually ended by a knee injury when he was twenty-six. Uh he was and he, he later became a successful financial advisor and lives in the village of Slaley. So there we are. Update on Keith Dyson there. Excellent. But, a man before his headline time, because if he'd been in the time of the vacuum cleaner, it would have been much more useful for headline writers, wouldn't it? It would oh, have yeah. been, yes. Hoovered, yeah. up, hoovered up the chances. Yeah. That's right, exactly. Born before the headline. Oh, oh dear, that's terrible, isn't it? Um, also, um, I also um, wasn't much football, wasn't much non-league football around. It's almost like the Northern League had a winter break. Um, but I did get to a game on Saturday, but at Prudder Youth Club Seniors against Redcar Town. And excitingly, they just switched the floodlights on. And after about three minutes, there was this loud bang and the floodlights went off um, because something had gone wrong with the generator. And and then and one of the committee was saying, is anyone here an electrician? And there was a man with literally like with a pint of lager in each hand. He went, I am an electrician. I'll sort it out for you. I, uh, and we thought he's going to go over there and it's going to be like Tom and Jerry. It's going to be this sort of loud fizzing noise and he's going to turn yellow and we'll be able to see his skeleton through his clothes. Um, but in fairness to him, he did he did fix it. He did fix it. And the lights came back on, which is a bit of a disappointment to me because I've never... I've never seen a game abandoned due to floodlight failure, oh. which given how many Northern League games I go to is quite a thing. Also, of course, never won a Northern League raffle. And, and at Prudder, when I bought my strip of tickets, one of them was 777. And the guy who sold it to me said, if you don't win with those, you never will. Um, and I didn't. <laughs> so there you are. So that's going to be my New Year's resolution is to win a Northern League raffle and see a game abandoned for floodlight failure. <laughs> one of these I could have some control over, I feel. The other... Not. <laughs> so if you see me arriving at a game with a big axe, you'll know what I'm up to. <laughs> and what news from there, Andy? Well, hot news, actually, from just outside my flat. People report from front lines all over the world. I just look outside my window because there's so much going on. There are now four footballs lodged high up in a tree that's halfway along. There's an all-weather pitch just outside my block of flats. And they've appeared there gradually over the last month or so. There were a couple and there's been another two. I'm not sure if they're even burst, but they're very high up the tree. It's not at one end of the pitch where you can imagine the occasional wild shot might have ended up, but along the side. So I've never actually seen anybody do this, but people have just been launching balls high across the pitch. I mean, that wouldn't happen in Argentina or France, World Cup finalists, it seemed to me. They wouldn't be so wayward, would they? they would. So I've decided it's a metaphor. You know, England will never achieve anything for as long as kids are bluting footballs high up a tree, even if it was clearances rather than wayward passes there's there's no excuse i think so i think i might take a photo and send it to the fi and ask them what they intend to do about this sort of thing i imagine i might get quite a few messages like that in the wake of the world cup um nice item in our in the howl our weekly newsletter this week about a photograph with a photograph of a man and his eight-year-old grandson standing under umbrella in torrential rain on open terrace during working mm. to as much with prescott cables and um, it went um viral on twitter two million people have now seen the photos since it went up on social media and um, everyone else had gone undercover but they're still out there and, and smiling 
and Workington were winning 3-2 of them, but they let in the last-minute equaliser. So I suppose that's a useful life lesson for the for the eight-year-old uh, Dylan Baker. This is the sort of thing that will happen, Dylan. You know, but at least they didn't lose. Talking of um, kids, and presumably I can say happy kids. I assume he's happy. Um, Romeo Beckham, who's now 20, made his debut for Brentford's B team in the London Senior Cup against Erith and Belvedere. Came on as a sub. Um, a few days ago, and he, he's been with the reserves of Inter Miami, the club, of course, owned by his dad, but he hasn't yet played in the first team. He's already 20, so is he going to have the sort of end, end up having the kind of career that, that Paul Dalgleish had? You know, where he just kind of drifted around. Now, Paul Dalgleish was with Celtic, Newcastle, and Liverpool. He played a few games for Newcastle, I think, but uh, then he did play for some other clubs. He played for Scotland in the 21s, but he, his first three clubs he was signed by his dad, you know. But if you're the last. If you're the much less talented son of a multi-millionaire famous player, why would you even want to be a footballer? I mean, you only ever be compared to your dad. I, mean, I suppose it's better than pretending to be a photographer like his older brother, Brooklyn, who's also had a go at being a model and a chef. But there's only certain strings your dad can pull, it seems to me, in giving you a, a public career. So, um, uh, Romeo, look into alternatives. See if you're any good at, you might be good at woodwork or you might have a flair for embalming or something. <laughs> Whatever it is, you might be happier. Just a thought, any anyway, Romeo, if you're listening. See, it's, you know, spread your wings a bit. Um, there, there's more to life than Brentford B in midweek in uh, against Erith and Belvedere. Though some people might not feel that, but I, I, I firmly believe that. Um, on the subject of David Beckham, um, he was probably the first well-known player, and people may have views on this, but the, the, the first well-known UK player with, with a man bun, close to 20 years ago, I think. But um, mm. the, now the most famous recent man bun devotee, um, Gareth Bale, has decided to retire. And that, it probably fair to say he's probably the best Welsh player since John Charles, maybe in the 50s, certainly mm. the first since John Charles to make a big impact at a major European club. And Ian Rush and Mark Hughes played abroad but didn't really make a, uh, much of an impact. And the only player from the UK to win five major European trophies, Champions League uh, trophies, with a European side. I mean, Ryan Giggs won international trophies with Man United, but he didn't, he didn't play abroad. And Bale did play a lot more for Wales than Giggs. He got 111 caps. Giggs, of course, often not made available for international squads by uh, Man United. So, although Gareth, you know, not my favourite Welsh player, that will always be Neville Southall, but um, a huge figure in the history of the Welsh team and instrumental in getting them into major tournaments. So, should at least is is acknowledge his departure and perhaps he can he can let the bun down now. He can he can unleash the bun. <laughs> Going back a few of those notes there, Andy, has anything been thrown into the, the tree to retrieve the balls? I remember there was a tree near us when I was growing up where there was a ball and also a cone, a traffic cone in there that yeah. had been thrown up there to try and retrieve the ball. They were up there for quite a while. Initially, there were a couple of balls up and I thought, oh, well, someone will be fetching a ladder and getting those down. There were a couple of kids standing looking at the tree, but they are quite high up. So I think you'd need like a builder's ladder. Or something you know, like a, a professional person's ladder, wouldn't you? Couldn't just be your common or garden step ladder. Um, and <laughs> they're too high up to get like a stick or something to, to poke them down. Mm. They, I haven't actually looked closely at them to see if they're still, you know, functioning as footballs, whether they are actually burst. I suppose they might be if they're actually up in the branches. But it's incredible that there are four. There's two uh, white ones and two kind of luminous orange ones. So there were, I think they've gone up there in pairs, and there were two, and then another two. But maybe they'll just be there forever. I don't know. I might take a photo and put them on, put it on my, on my Instagram. And to any, just the three people for me on Instagram <laughs> might sort of add a little colour to the story. 
Do you think that the, ball, the balls have been kicked up there to get one of the other balls down? It's just like a self-perpetuating thing. It's going to be like, yeah. next time there'll be five. Some kid's yeah. going to, I'll do it. I can do it this time. <laughs> Definitely. We also had a time when there was a brick for retrieving a ball, which meant an extra sport of having to dodge the brick as it fell down from the tree, which <laughs> that, that summer flew by in the Vale of York. As you can unless, unless it's some sort of folk tradition that I'm unaware of. I, I, mean, I have lived in this area for quite a long time. You know, people leave out kind of good luck charms and various things that, you know, the fairy folk will see kind of thing in various parts of it, mostly rural parts of Britain and Ireland. Oh, yeah, it's like an offering tree. Yeah, and maybe it's one of those things. <laughs> yeah, I'm, maybe be. it's that tree and I'm completely unaware of it. And there is a tradition, it must be going back to when professional football started or even before, of little leaving inflated bladders up a tree at New Year. <laughs> I don't know. I'll ask people in the shops next time I go in, is there, a, is there an inflated bladder up a tree tradition around here that I'm previously unaware of? If so, make you an in. offering to the god of football. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, if Millwall get promoted, you'll know that's you know. Well, Millwall are doing quite well. As Millwall, there like, you are. The that's probably that's probably a decent number of balls well. in that tree. Perhaps there is something in it. <laughs> Issue 428 of When Saturday Comes magazine is out now. And joining me to probe its pages is When Saturday Comes deputy editor, Fionn Thomas. Fionn, how are you? Good, Dan. How are you? Um, Excuse me, I'm fine, thank you. I was just (laughs) sipping tea there, forgetting that you would ask me back. Tell us about some of the glorious items in this month's magazine. Okay, so this is um, the the post-Christmas issue, the first one since the World Cup finished. Um, We're usually not doing a World Cup finishing issue at this time of year, but yeah, we're wrapping up everything that happened in Qatar. Um, So we had the the usual TV review. Um, So we had Taylor Parks watching for us on the BBC and Cameron Carter uh, got to watch on ITV. Um, So in their pieces, they, they... remind us of some of the the lines of commentary and punditry that we might have missed or just deliberately forgotten. Uh, My favourite is uh, Danny Murphy observing that Rodrigo de Paul had incredible fitness levels, so no wonder he's tired. (laughs) Classic Danny Murphy. As well as that, we focused on a few uh, a few of the countries. So we had Peter Schimkat on the sort of lack of interest in Germany, um, how the DFB are hoping to fix that before they host in Euro 2024. Um, we've got Hugh Richards on Wales, ultimately disappointing World Cup, but sort of optimism for the next generation. Um, James Montagu on the support for Morocco. James Eastham on France just falling short. And then, of course, uh, Argentina. We've got Joel Richards about how they've they and Messi fulfilled their destiny um, as their fans, to be fair, told us all along they would. That's enough World Cup, really. So back on home soil for the match of the month. Um, we had Mike Wally go to Bolton against Derby just after Christmas. And of course, as it was a match of the month, it was a nil-nil draw. Um, so the sort of curse continues, really. I think it's now been over a year since the home side won in a game that we've covered for this feature. <laughs> so yeah, really, at some point, we are going to struggle to be allowed to go to any more games I think but yeah it was for a nil-nil I think it, it seemed like a, a pretty good one um, it was massive crowd of over 25,000 uh, Bolton's biggest crowd since they were in the Premier League despite the appalling weather and uh, among 
Paul Thompson's many good photos uh, that he took for this feature. Um, my favourite one is uh, the one outside the stadium before the game where there's fans crowded under a marquee on a square of astroturf with puddles on the car park all around and everyone everyone deliberately standing under this marquee reef. It's a very a very bleak scene. But yeah, Mike Mike sort of he says, you know, it was it was a, a good nil nil in this way and he says my favourite quote from it, he says, There's no jackpot, no sunshine, no heartwarming Jimmy Stewart ending, but sometimes two honest sets of players giving everything in front of a huge crowd brings its own rewards. Yeah. So yeah, nil-nils can be good. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think we got a good nil-nil there. We also sadly lost Pele recently. Um, so of course we have a tribute to him um, by Jonathan O'Brien, who acknowledges the, the sort of accusation that sometimes comes out that as Pele never played in European leagues, he can't be compared to to the other greats but I mean as Jonathan says whenever he did play European defenders in the World Cups or in the Intercontinental Cups he was uh, quote either too good for them or he got hacked alive and definitely the sort of videos that were doing the rounds recently of the the compilations of him being taken out basically every time he got on the ball um, sums up the sort of treatment he got in those games but yeah more importantly Jonathan mostly focuses on celebrating his sort of style and skill and his uh, smooth manner post-retirement, as he says. We've also got the Team Spirit feature this month, uh, looking at Blackburn Rovers. Um, so as usual, we've got two pieces. Uh, the first one is from Bruce Wilkinson, who looks at the uh, the f- club's pre-First World War years. Um, so when Blackburn was sort of the pioneers of using professional players from Scotland in particular, uh, which interestingly made them made them a high-profile target, which resulted in the main stand at Ewood Park being subject to an arson attack um, as part of the suffragette campaign at the time. Uh, but it didn't stop them winning the league that season. And then in the other half of that Blackburn feature, we've got Tom Green, um, who tells his story as a supporter from the early 90s uh, through to the present day, where he finds himself watching from afar in Denmark at the time when his club are led by a Danish manager and still refusing to draw any league games, Blackburn. I think they've played 26 and still not still not drawn a single one. Uh, elsewhere, we've also got our recently uh, departed from WSC colleague, Tom. Um, he's back in WSC. Uh, we can't <laughs> keep him away this time. He's uh, written for us um, with a piece on uh, the Sheffield-based organisation Football for Food Banks. Um, so since 2020, uh, they've been arranging what sound like incredibly popular weekly casual football games. Um, and as part of that, everyone who takes part is uh, is helping to raise money for local food banks. Um, it's since expanded to Manchester, Chesterfield and Milton Keynes. Um, they've had a big national tournament as well. Um, so, yeah, really interesting, uh, really interesting organization and uh, hopefully they'll they'll keep expanding interestingly for this piece tom interviewed the organizer of football for food banks uh, he's a guy called matty castle who we've discovered holds the honor of uh, being the first baby to ever be brought to a wc book launch because <laughs> his uh, his mum kathy is a, is a former contributor and she once wrote a piece about going to football uh, while pregnant and the baby in that case was Matty and he's now 32 so yeah nice bit of um, cyclical WSC heritage uh, in that one and I also really enjoyed the the object lesson feature this month uh, which was by Mike Bailey he's writing about a letter that his uh, his dad found in the loft which was sent to Mike in December 1989 
by an Edward Freeman of the merchandise division at Tottenham Hotspur. And what he was responding to was a sort of request by a teenage Mike Bailey that Spurs might consider sponsoring the kit of his under-14 indoor football league team in Shropshire, which seems an entirely reasonable request. But unfortunately, the letter politely said that Spurs were unable to assist on this occasion, which uh, sort of wonder what occasion they might have <laughs> been able to assist. Anyway, as Mike says in his piece, it's, it's really the fact that they bothered to reply at all to this uh, to this letter that sort of makes it a very special keepsake. Um, he says it evokes an innocent, genial age where inquiries to football clubs, no matter how seemingly audacious, were acknowledged by return mail. And yeah, and maybe it'd be fun to do an experiment now, right to Spurs asking for sponsorship for a team now and see if see if you get any kind of response. I don't know, maybe maybe someone wants to try. Seeing that letter has made me want to dig out my letter from Scarborough when I applied for the manager's job with championship manager credentials in the mid-90s. I must find that somewhere and they sent me a very polite letter back that I wouldn't be asked for interview on that, on that occasion as well, I think. So, phrase of, phrase of the time. <laughs> well, so we got the shot feature. So we had uh, Colin McPherson uh, was on shot duty this month um, and he went to Atherston Town versus Stour Swifts in the FA Vars. Um, I did actually go to this ground last season and I remember thinking at the time it would make a really good uh, shot feature. So I'm glad we've got there. I'd particularly recommend having a close look at the picture of the burger van because it's got it's got lots of interesting things on it including uh, advertising giant filled yorkshire puddings which i'm not sure i've ever seen at a football ground before <laughs> great condiments table as well Notable yes condiments very table. much That's so very strong, very i, I strong. do rem- i do remember that from my visit as well so yeah i'd really <laughs> i'd really recommend getting down to the adders and uh, enjoying <laughs> enjoying all they have to offer and other than that yeah loads more stuff uh, i've got pieces on coventry gillingham Wrexham, cristiano ronaldo match fixing in poland in the early 1990s and then harry on boggy wet non-league pitches during winter as i look out the window at the pouring rain with uh, another saturday approaching glorious stuff and the book reviews are back as well always a favorite of mine so yeah out now go and get yours or subscribe hats and scarves and pin badges program 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 subscribe to when saturday comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door you'll also save money on the shop price receive discounts on books and t-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive sign up at shop.wsc.co UK. Jackpot tickets. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Arcadia Shepherds, Terry Eccles, what referees really write down when they book players. And it's landed on great players who made bad managers. Ooh. Andy, what the chuffing Nora does that bring to mind? Well, I'm going to ignore the son of Frank Lampard Sr., as I've said enough about Everton <laughs> for this, this um, time, I think. Um, I have to really say Diego Maradona's time in management was never realistically going to go well, given that he had major addiction problems by the time he became a manager. He had various goes at in Argentina and in the Middle East and briefly in Belarus as well, but you, you spe- suspect for the most part that he was been taken on for publicity as much as anything else. And of course, his time as Argentina manager wasn't entirely a disaster. They got to the quarterfinals of the 2010 World Cup, though they did then lose 4-0 to Germany. They had quite a strong squad and, and probably should have done better. And some bizarre squad selections, including, and notoriously, it's, it's mentioned quite a bit in relation to that World Cup, 
a journeyman defender who he included because he'd featured in the dream that Maradona had, had about Argentina winning the World Cup. And he couldn't remember any of the players in the dream but this one guy. So he put him in the squad that he only got four caps. And he's recalled after seven years' absence from the national team to uh, make the World Cup squad. But I remember seeing footage of, of Maradona in one of his jobs in Argentina when a camera crew were filming him. And they, it showed him leading a, like a whole troop of people to stand outside the referee's dressing room and kind of knock on the door and trying to get them to come out and explain a particular decision they get given against his team. So suspect he might not have taken defeats while in general, you know, might, might have brooded a bit more than was, than was, than was healthy or was, than was, than any, any league he's involved in would, would, uh, would like. Um, on a smaller scale, I suppose, I man, what you have to think, what were Kettering who were in the conference North at the time, really thinking by appointing Paul Gascoigne as manager. He was there for just over five weeks in uh, autumn, 2005. Paul Davis, former Arsenal player, did the coaching. But Gascoigne was, supposedly in charge when I mean, the results were pretty poor and transpired that he'd been turning up sort of worse for worse most days and that was given as the reason for him being sacked but I mean it had it's often been said about Gascon over the years that what he really needed what he needs is to be involved in football in some way but and you know do some coaching whatever but the one time he was given a role at club he, he was a, a disaster I, mean, I suppose if you've been generous you could say that it was a slightly starstruck owner who at least hope they get plenty of media attention, which they did, of course, because Gascon was was by then widely known to have a, a, a drink problem. But um, it, it unfortunately became a, a, a media circus very quickly. It's not an experience he's, uh, or anyone else has tried to repeat since. Also, I should say, two members of the, the Charlton-Milburn dynasty, Jackie Milburn, famous centre-forward for Newcastle England in the 50s, cousin of the Charltons, had been a successful had been successful as a, as a player manager with Linfield in Northern Ireland and had a couple of years with a team in the Eastman League. Uh, usually, he became Hillingdon Borough later, I think. But then he took over from Alf Ramsey at Ipswich. Alf Ramsey had won the league in Ipswich his first ever season in Division One in sixty one sixty two, and then um, when they taken opponents by surprise, really, with a largely unknown team with a, a couple of big strikers and a couple of wingers. But the, the next season they struggled, even with Ramsey in charge, and they finished. About 17th, Ramsey actually only left to take the England job in the spring of the following season. So they were already struggling. And Middleton had four games at the end of that season and they, they did stay up. But then he was in a hiding to nothing really the following season. A team that was no longer a surprise package and there wasn't a lot of money. He did bring in some new players from Scotland. They made a great start. They beat Burnley 3-1 in the first time. Burnley was a strong side then. But their next home game, they lost 7-2 against Man United. They lost 10-1 at Fulham at Christmas. So they did win the return uh, the next day, 4-1, finished bottom. And he held on for the next five games of the next season. We only got one point late in 15 goals before he got sacked. And he never went back into management. He, he worked as a match reporter subsequently for the News of the World. But I think it's more generally difficult to take over at a club who think who, who've had a, su- a surprise success built by someone else. Where I don't think Alf Ramsey had a whole team of people behind him in terms of coaching stuff. It was really just him. And this, you go in as the new person and you've got to sort of repeat the repeat the miracle. I think very hard to do for a, a, a novice manager. Then I should also say, uh, Bobby, uh, uh, Jackie Milburn's cousin, Bobby Charlton, took over at Preston the year that Jack Charlton became Middlesbrough manager, 73-74. Middlesbrough, of course, went up. Preston went down to the third division. Um, Bobby then came back as a player the next season when they finished ninth, but he left at the start of the following season. There's a documentary about Middlesbrough from that season. And they play Preston around Christmas and they, they win 3-0. And Jack gives Bobby a couple of dead birds, pheasants or something he's got in the boot of his car. And Bobby already looks forlorn. He looks about as unhappy as the, as the pheasants do. You know, He doesn't seem especially thrilled by the present either. I mean, he, he did run coaching schools, obviously, for quite a while. So he had a, a lot of practice in 
coaching kids, but as has been said, I think sometimes, you know, famous players who go into management, you know, he, he, he couldn't perhaps communicate the things that he could do instinctively. And also maybe you get the feeling he didn't have enough of a, there's like enough of a hard edge maybe you need as a manager. Maybe he's too too sort of diffident, too of a sort of reserved sort of personality. And not that I'd want to single out Man United players, but then of course there's Gary Neville, someone who certainly isn't a reserved sort of personality and a very confident <laughs> pundit on Sky and ITV. He certainly knows what he thinks and he, he lets you know, um, holding forth on what teams and managers should do and so on. But he was a disastrous head coach at Valencia. He got involved there as the, the club's owner, Peter Lim, was a friend of his who is also invested in Salford City, where Neville's one of the co-owners with several of the Man United players of the class of 92. But Valencia under Neville, they won only won three ga- three out of 16 games. No clean sheets, lost 7-0 to Barcelona in the Spanish Cup semi-final. And um, he didn't speak any Spanish. Maybe he thought that Class of 92 magnetism would be enough. You know, he could tell the players funny stories about Nicky Butt in the trains, changing rooms or something. I don't know. <laughs> but maybe it didn't didn't mean much to players, especially if you can't actually speak to them. But um, if, if, whenever Gary Neville gives managers a hard time in his um, usually forthright comments on TV, perhaps they should just respond by coughing politely and saying, Valencia 2016, Gary. <laughs> 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 and Harry? Well, I think Andy mentioned Bobby Charlton. His predecessor, I suppose, as the golden boy of British football was Billy Wright, who also was um, an unsuccessful manager, took charge of Arsenal. Um, I think he has the lowest post-war um, win percentage of any Arsenal manager. Uh, he was fired in the summer of 1966 after four years in charge. Um, they never Arsenal never finished higher than seventh and never got beyond the fifth round of the FA Cup. And one of their games, a 3-0 home defeat to Leeds United towards the end of his final season, was watched by 4,500 people, which I'm pretty sure is the lowest crowd ever at Highbury. Um, Brian Glanville said of Billy Wright memorably, he had neither the guile nor authority to make things work and reacted childishly to criticism. I wonder who was doing the criticising. <laughs> not Brian, not Brian Glanville, surely. Um, also, another another golden boy of, of English football, our old friend, the sheet metal worker's son hey. from Gosforth, um, Alan Shearer. Uh, hard to imagine, given the inspirational and tactically astute nature of his punditry, that he wouldn't make a success <laughs> of managing, isn't it? Um, but there he was. He took over Newcastle eight, last eight games of the season, managed to get just five points out of twenty-four, and nearly all of them from Middlesbrough. It seems to me, anyway, um, and he never—he's never managed again. He did bring in—I think he brought in Ian Dowie as his assistant, a bit like one of those things where Hollywood film stars always want co-stars who are shorter than them to make them look taller. <laughs> and it was a similar sort of thing. He's bound to look better if he was standing next to Ian Dowie. That's my view, anyway. Um, another player who uh, who didn't do well as a manager, but was—you know—we could argue about the greatness of certain players. But this guy obviously was a great player, Lothar Matthäus, 150 camps for Germany. Um, he's managed in all around the world, um, in, in it's just, just about everywhere, Serbia, Hungary, Austria, Israel, Bulgaria, Brazil, but he's never been offered a job in Germany, uh, to which Lothar, with characteristic modesty, says, Germany should be ashamed of the way it treats such an idol. <laughs> <laughs> That may be why he hasn't got a job. That's not a good attitude to go in with, Lothar. Um, we should say that his, his, his private life as well has been somewhat chaotic. He's been married four times uh, at the last count anyway. I'm, I'm not, that, that's what I'm up to anyway. And um, he claimed that his, the, the, his fourth wife cost him the job of managing Cameroon, um, where he was, he was about to be appointed manager of Cameroon, he says, anyway. And then um, tabloids published photos of his fourth wife canoodling with an Italian waiter and Lothar Mateus said, 
The wife of the president of Cameroon has heard of my marital situation and refused to let me lead the nation. Well, he wasn't really leading the nation. It's a national football team, but there we are in his mind. Uh, also very briefly in charge of, uh, in went to Brazil, took over Atletico Paranaensis in Brazil, um, was only in charge of seven matches and then faxed in his resignation saying that he had to quit due to personal reasons of great urgency. Um, somehow he managed to leave them with a €5,000 phone bill um, <laughs> to settle on his behalf. So really, just the man you want, just the man you want in charge, I think, Lothar Mateus. Also, you should mention uh, Tony Adams as well. Terrible spells at Wickham and Portsmouth. Uh, and then another another of, uh, a bit like Gary Neville, went over to Spain, took charge of Granada. And was and he, his clothes were so bad, uh, was one of the things that was pointed out, that he wore terrible clothes, so much so that one of the Real Madrid players shouted at him from the, from the dugout, waiter, waiter, a Coca-Cola, please. <laughs> uh, sound state of affairs for poor old Tony Adams there. It's time for the part of the podcast where one of us chooses a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Harry, what's your choice this time? I've gone for um, Elvin Offside and the Corner Quartetten, uh, singing the praises of SK Bram of Norway in 1978. I was probably attracted by the cover of the record in which Elvin is dressed as a Norwegian fireman. I mean, it has a vague look of Peter Cook about him. Uh, the Quartet, meanwhile, looked like a sort of the Tetley Bitterman from a 1970s beer advert. I should say that Elvin is dressed as uh, as a fireman because brown uh, means fire in Norway. Um, but, uh, but, but should he be trying to put the fire out? Shouldn't he be sort of encouraging the fire? Should be dressed as an arsonist or at least carrying some bellows, shouldn't he? He shouldn't want to put brown out the, the fire out. He should, be, he should be building it up. But anyway, this is a, a song that was, I think, I assume it came out in 1978, so presumably celebrating the fact that Brown had got to the Norwegian Cup final, where they actually lost 2-1 to Lillestrøm. It was a very good Brown side, led by the splendidly named Steiner Aas, um, well, I think one of their top strikers of all time, and also featuring Bjorn Strongstad, who scored 127 goals in 222 matches for Brown. And then, um, he, and then he retired at the age of 25 to attend uh, the University of San Francisco. Um, so football's loss was academia's gain. So this is SK Brown and the Elvin Offside in the corner Quartetten.
Now it's time for our giddy feature, The Final Third, in which we ask someone to help us build a football museum by donating a match, a player and an object. This time I'm joined by Nick Barnes, BBC Radio Newcastle's Sunderland commentator. Nick, how are you? Uh, very well. Um, things are going well. Um, I mean, we've got to make the most of moments like this because, as you well know, around every corner, lies an abyss, especially when you're covering clubs like Sunderland. In life and in football and in Sunderland, I think that's true, isn't it? I, I feel I know you because we've exchanged tweets a few times and things, but of course from Sunderland till I die where those living outside the North East will, will recognise your voice from and if they could see you now, they would recognise you from there as well. A, a different experience, what was it like seeing yourself commentating? A, a bit strange to begin with, but I think uh, because the series... The two series they made, uh, which had been aired, took so long to film over months uh, that you got so used to being around or the cameras being around um, filming. They were filming every commentary. They'd have a GoPro camera filming us doing every game. Um, That When it came back to watching the series itself, because I've appeared in the past on Look North and so on and so on, it, it wasn't such a surprise. To me, I think I was more surprised by the reaction of people recognising me in the street randomly, wherever I might be. And I've been in some strange places where people have come up and have recognised me from, from the series. Now, they are, they, they are in the process of editing a third, I say series, mm. it's a sort of mini-series, there's two, two episodes, I think, about to be released, which look back at Sunderland winning the playoff final um, and the, and the build-up to that and Wembley. So the whole thing's going to happen all over again. You know, it's, it's going to be a bit surreal in, in that sense. But I think generally the, the series seems to have been well-received. It seems to have gone down well on the whole. I don't think um, people within the club, managers, players, etc., uh, see it in the same light as fans who've watched the series because I think they, they feel they're very much under the spotlight and not a spotlight that managers and players don't like that introspection. And I think that has been something that, um, you know, it's become apparent when they were filming this, I say, third series. Uh, Tony Mowbray and Mark Venus were particularly concerned they were going to start filming them. Yeah. Um, but uh, rest assured, they're, they're, they're not in this and they're, they're well out of it. Yeah. Which is in a way ironic because Mowbray, he would be excellent television. I mean, lately it's been about the the sweets at the press conference and things. Just a wonderfully entertaining man, isn't he? I mean, look, he's a delight. I mean, for us in the in the media, he's gold dust. I mean, he he you can ask him anything, he'll talk about anything. He's just a lovely, lovely guy. I and mean, when I haven't spoken to anybody who has has a bad word to say about Tony Mowbray, and when he was appointed. All I got were messages from people who'd worked with him saying, you'll love working with Tony Mowbray. He's really, really good. I mean, he was the, he, he saw the antithesis in a way of Alex Neal, who was short, abrupt, um, and, and very, very to the point. But, you know, in his own way was, was fine. I mean, you, you, you learn to deal with managers and their whims and the way that they are. Um, not so much when Zoom was about because of COVID. That was a sort of particularly... Um, horrible period, if you like, to be a broadcaster because Zoom just killed any sort of relationship you could build up with with the manager or players, etc. You know, being face to face again. I mean, it would have been torture if we'd had to do Tony Mowbray on Zoom because he's so personable. He's such such a um, affable person that you want to be in his company, and that I think you know you you get more from him. Um, 
but brilliant absolutely brilliant to deal with you know as i say you you, you can ask him three questions and you've got 15 minutes of audio um but he's actually so he's so interesting to listen to i mean you if you talk to anybody who listens to what he has to say he's actually very very engaging i mean he made the point yeah. that people think he's boring and gruff and um hasn't got much personality but actually if you sit and listen to him he's actually very engaging and he's got a lot to say um mm. and he's very absorbing um very knowledgeable obviously in the years that he's been in the game as a player as a, and a manager or as head coach as he is now and he tells an endearing story about when he was leaving uh, West Bromwich Albion he came out with his belongings from his office to find they were actually burning off manager in the car park to replace it with a letters head coach the new incumbent but um no brilliant I mean such a yeah such a lovely guy and actually you know he's he's had he's, he's done really really well so far at Sunderland and that mm. that, that too uh, um, has obviously been a help because um, he's come into a strange situation the project as he will call it in inverted commas because I suppose that's the best way to describe how Sunderland is at the minute with the way that they're moving forwards and how they want to build for the future and you have to buy into that but I mean he's bought readily into that and he was only saying um, yesterday when we spoke to him that you know, he sees himself as a, a development coach rather than necessarily as a as a football manager, though he would still like another stab at the Premier League. And I know you love travelling round grounds and seeing the, the culture of football everywhere, but it must be good for you to be back in the Championship and feeling quite stable about it, dare I say, at the moment as well. Yes. I mean, it's interesting that question of stability because Alex Neil. Um, when he was here in the summer pre-season and then Tony and Mowbray when he arrived were both at pains to point out that play down expectations they, they really did try and strive to say you know th this is a club that finished fifth in League One um, and historically all the clubs that have come up from League One have struggled in the championship so you know the, the, the first hurdle really is to stay in the championship well they've you know th th this season clearly the championship is um, bizarre. It, it, it's you can leap from seventeenth to seventh, you know, with two wins. It's a strange, strange division this year, and that has probably helped Sunderland. There's no question. Um, it's been in Sunderland's favour that the division this year has been like that. But they've they've more than held their own. I mean, on their day, they're as good as anybody in the top six. Um, they, but they can also be as poor as anybody in the bottom six. Um, that's the whims of the championship. But they do now, as you say, look like they're stable. People can enjoy it a little bit more. And to be honest, some of the football has been fantastic to watch. Some of the players they've mm. got now um, are real talents. Um, and that all bodes well for the future. But yes, it's great to be back in the Championship. But, you know, in a way, League One was quite endearing in the time that we were, in, we were there because, um, and I know it wore a bit thin with supporters the fourth season and everyone was starting to become... A little bit weary and you know they didn't get out of League One in that fourth season I think the fifth season would have been a big challenge for everybody concerned what it did bring to the football club was a sense of reality again a sense of it's 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 um who it is what it is mm. um we were more in touch with the football club than we'd ever been before in the championship or the Premier League everywhere you went you know there was no media circus Everybody went out of their way at the clubs that we were going to to make you you feel welcome. Uh, it almost felt quite humbling in a way that people, I think, felt that Sunderland expected more of these clubs. And I think, you know, they did learn quite quickly that 
they were, you know, Sunderland were on the same level as Accrington Stanley, same level as Fleetwood, same level as AFC Wimbledon. Um, and all credit to those clubs that that really made you know, or went out of their way to make us feel welcome and 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 to sort of embrace Sunderland being in League One. It was to their end, to their benefit, of course, as well, because Sunderland took such a big support to all those the, those clubs, and that you know, and that by you know um, inference means bigger income for them. Great, but that's that's great for them as well. And so it, over those three or four years, you know, we, it it was in many ways an enjoyable experience except for and as you've written about covid when we were we were commentating in empty stadiums and um it was just uh, a bizarre um discombobulating experience and one i don't think anybody who's ever been through that experience as a broadcaster or a newspaper writer would ever want to go through again and certainly i don't think the players or you know the, the footballers themselves would ever want to be experience that again Mm. What about your own journey then from the the southwest to the northeast, and how did you wind up being the Sunderland commentator? Uh, long and winding road. I I, I was I, I joined the BBC in Exeter when I left university. Um, initially, I was doing road reports for the AA onto the local stations in Devon, which led to me becoming a freelance um, technical operator, if you like, at, at Radio Devon for the BBC through which I then started to do um, reporting and mainly football reporting at the weekends to, to, to try and learn that side of radio. So I'd be covering games for the away stations, the BBC away stations, because very few stations back then, which was in the late 80s, did full commentary. But they had sports programmes, they had reporters around the country and they wouldn't send anybody to the games in Devon, but they'd use one of us from Radio Devon to report on games from Exeter, Torquay and, and Plymouth. So I started sort of, that was my first footings, if you like, in sports reporting. So I was a couple of years at Radio Devon. And then I, I got a staff job at Radio Cumbria. And their staff jobs were few and far between. So you, you know, thus the leap from Devon to Cumbria, because one became available. I, I got it, started work at Radio Cumbria in 1988. Um, and then, as fortune would have it, the sports editor sports producer left a couple of years later and I was the only one on the station who had an interest in in sport and I'd been working on the sports programs as well so I inherited the sports producer's job and at that time it was around 1991 92 we weren't doing commentary of Carlisle United and I felt that that was something we were missing a trick because Carlisle has got a, um, a big catchment area you know when they're doing well you've got southwest Scotland you've got Cumbria you've got to a certain extent you know, creeping into Northumberland and so on. Um, so we knew there was a big catchment area. Um, I I put it to the, the manager, if I could travel with the football team to cut down costs and if they were amenable to that, could we do full commentary? The manager at the time, Aidan McCaffrey at Carlisle, was happy for me to do that. So that's how it started at Carlisle. I started full, full commentary with Carlisle United in, in 1992. Did six seasons, seven seasons, six years with Carlisle then moved to, um, well, I fell out with Michael Knight and the owner. I knew I was going to be banned the following season. So I got, uh, I, I, I've got an attachment to BBC Sport in London for four months during the 1998 World Cup. And as a consequence of that, because I was working with Ian Dennis, who's now the chief football uh, reporter for the BBC, um, I got a job at Radio Newcastle as the Newcastle United commentator because he was moving to Leeds. So he moved to Leeds United. I took over at Newcastle United and did five seasons with Newcastle. 
And then we had a change around at Radio Newcastle because the commentator who used to commentate on Newcastle for Metro, Mick Lowe's, came to, to the BBC but was in the studio doing studio presentation. It was felt that was a waste because he was sort of perhaps, you know, an argument, you know, no doubt about it, it was the best known um, Newcastle commentator. They moved me across to Sunderland in 2003 and Mick took over Newcastle. Um, and so I've been doing Sunderland now with Benno since 2003. Mm. So you made the, the controversial Lee Clark style move. I hadn't realised. Yes. That. Well, it, yeah, it was at the time. But <laughs> Without I mean, the offensive T-shirt. Um, no, but I mean, <laughs> interestingly enough, you know, you, you, at the time I'm you know, sort of giving up European football and top five yeah. finishes in the Premier League. And it seemed, and it was a demotion in, in one sense, because that was the season 2003 that Sunderland had been relegated, lowest points total, etc. So it looked like the poison chalice. As it's happened over the years, it's been a phenomenal job. It's been fantastic because mm. the managers I've dealt with over that, you know, over this 20 years is uh, it's a, you know, a veritable who's who of football <laughs> history, isn't it? I mean, Roy Keane, Martin O'Neill, Sam Allardyce, so, you know, the list goes on. I mean, so it's been, and, and now Tony Mowbray, it's been, it's been phenomenal. Yeah, wonderful stuff. Well, we haven't just got you on here to talk about that compelling as it is. We've got you here as our latest guest curator for the When Saturday Comes Football Museum. And first of all, Nick, I would like you to nominate for the museum a match. Well, I thought long and hard about this because there are a lot of matches I could have picked which have been in one sense, shape or form, dramatic or uh, meaningful or just matches you remember with fond affection. But I actually, in the end, came down to one which was um, it was really special at the time because I'd never been to Wembley. So, uh, you know, I, I was grew up as an Exeter fan, started covering Carlisle. I'd never in a million years did I ever dream that I would one day go to Wembley, let alone as a as a commentator. And then Carlisle United won, uh, got through to the Autoglass final, which is now the Papa John's, of course. Uh, they got through to the Autoglass final in 1995 against Birmingham City. Now, Birmingham City were then top of what was then the third division and uh, Carlisle were looking to try and get promotion out of the then fourth division so uh, you know Birmingham we knew were going to take a, a big allocation to Wembley now what made it so special was that because I travelled with the team at the time the club ha had no hesitation in allowing us to travel on the team bus to Wembley so I had the privilege of being on the Carlisle United team bus that drove up to the old Wembley through the, well, we went previously the night before to lay out the kit. So I had my first experience at Wembley was to go the night before to lay the kit out with the kit man. And we went in on the team bus with Mick Wadsworth, the, the manager and a couple of the backroom staff. But on the day of the final, I was on that team bus, which drove up through all the crowds going to Wembley. And it was a sellout. It was 77,000 because Birmingham took 50,000 fans. Carlisle took 27,000. So through all the fans through North London, driving up to the, those big gates at Wembley, through the gates, up the tunnel, and then to be able to, to get out and walk out onto the pitch at Wembley was just staggering. And it was also the first golden goal final. Mm. Um, thankfully, it was a, that was abolished. But, but the whole experience, Wembley, going on the team bus, the drama, I mean, it was a dramatic match. I mean, Sunderland more, uh, Carlisle more than held their own. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent, we're unlucky to, to lose. And, and, and the way 
golden goal worked. It was probably a, a cruel way to lose. Yeah. Um, I'd swap you penalties now for golden goal any day of the yeah. week. But um, yeah, that so that that was the game I picked because it was it was that moment in my life and as a commentator that you you yearn for those sort of experiences and that mm. was my first experience of Wembley. I've been back quite a few times since, uh, not with great success, but um, <laughs> Carlisle at least did go back two years later and win it. And again, two years later, I was on the team bus again, had the same privilege of being able to walk out on the pitch. And this time, um, they did they did win. But that first time. That first trip to Wembley, that final with a sellout Wembley, that it really, when I look back over my career, that was a, a sort of, a, you know, probably um, the one big moment for me, uh, which I always yeah. look back fondly on. That is a beautiful addition to the museum. I think to represent that match, we'll have the plaque from the front of the team coach, because I always love spotting those. Uh, official coach, Carlisle United. Magical. Okay, Nick, that's perfect. Let's have a player for the museum. Well, the player, I go back again to when I first started going to watch live football, which was at Exeter City. And I first started going up in the 1976-77 season. The player manager, ironically, at the time was Bobby Saxton who, of course, oh, moved to, to Sunderland yeah. as um, Peter Reed's number two. Um, but Bobby was player manager at Exeter and uh, they were in the, the fourth division. And I started going up to watch them and um, loved them. It, it was just, I loved it. It was such a fantastic experience. They were doing well that season. To cut a long story short, they won. Bobby Saxon got them promoted. I remember being at home one night. They were away at Barnsley on a wild, horrible night. Um, and you could only get the latest score on it sort of late on on BBC local television. And I saw at half time they were three nil down, and I was devastated. Well, that's their chances of going up blown. Only to find out later they won four three at Barnsley. Um, that team was just remarkable. But it was made up of um, what you, you, you'd call them journeyman players. Now it's a, a term that I know Marco Gabbiadini always pulls me up for because he says no footballers are journeymen they're professionals blah 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 but they were made up of a hodgepodge of players um people like jimmy giles who was known as farmer giles who's who basically his whole career was spent in lower leagues um and he was a, a, a old-fashioned center half if you like no airs or graces just thumped the ball smashed it into the stand you know just got rid they had tony kello playing up front brilliant goal scorer and even more brilliant goal scorer was Alan Beer, who was on the verge of moving to Arsenal, I think, but broke his leg. And that effectively ended his career. And now he'd be he'd be back playing because the medical side of things has improved so much. Alan Beer would have gone on to, to make his name as a first division player. He was absolutely brilliant up front. And so they had all these journeyman footballers and and and, and Bobby Saxton was just brilliant. And he cobbled them together and he got the promotion-winning team. But the one player that always stood out for me was a guy called Johnny Hoare. Now, it probably mean nothing to anybody if, you, if you're not from Devon, but Johnny was born in Cornwall. He was a defender. He went on to manage Plymouth Argyle for a season and take them to the FA Cup semi-final in 1984 when they lost to Watford. And he'd started his career. He's a Cornishman. He'd started his career at Plymouth, but came to Exeter. And he wore rugby boots. And it was just, you know, I mean, the notion of a player now wearing, and, and if you didn't, if you don't know, because there'll be people listening thinking, rugby boots, what are rugby boots? Well, rugby boots had a high ankle. They were like, a, they were a proper boot with a high leather ankle. 
And Johnny used to wear these old-fashioned rugby boots. I, mean, I used to wear them at school. He used to wear these leather, old-fashioned rugby boots to protect his ankles. Um, and he, was, he had this sort of stoop. He wasn't the biggest in the world, but he, 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 he played his heart out for Exeter. He was, he was wonderful. He was a really lovely guy. And for me, that was the epitome of everything that was, about, was right about football at the time. You know, someone could play in rugby boots and Bobby Saxton was Bobby Saxton even back then in 1976, 77. And I just fell in. I actually, when, when Bobby was at Sunderland, when Roy Keane came to Sunderland, Roy Keane, we, we, there was a, get a charity game. We played at the Academy of Light, Roy and his, the Sunderland backroom staff and played the press. And Bobby was part of the, um, the makeup of all that. And when we were in the dressing room, I started chatting to Bobby about the team from 76, 77. And we actually spent the next 10, 15 minutes as we were wandering out to the pitches to play the game going back through that team of 76, 77 with him um, and reminiscing about his time as oh, Exeter City's player manager. Um, and that's when I fell in, you know, re- I mean, I loved football as a kid anyway, but going to watch Exeter then and watching that team and, and the likes of Johnny Hall, that was, I, that was really, that was my foundation for everything that's come since. Yeah. Oh, in, in, a, in a glass case, Johnny Hall's rugby boots, superb. And, and how much Kello and Beer sounds like a, a circus duo is uh, a it, wonderful it, thing as it well. It does, yeah. I think, he ended, I think Tony Kelly ended up at Blackpool, I think he ended up in. But, um, yeah, I remember the name. Yeah, but he was a great goal. I mean, he, he was part of it. And one night, if I, one of the matches I thought about picking was the night Exeter beat Newcastle 4-0 in an FA Cup replay. They'd drawn 1-1 at St. James's Park, Newcastle. And then they took them back to the real St. James's Park. And... Um, beat them 4-0, uh, which is another memorable night. I mean, it was on sports night that night, and Harry Carpenter presenting it said, this is the best game we've ever had on sports night, which just sort of cap, oh. capped the evening. But um, in Wembley, though, that that it was, in the end, uh, edged it. Oh, wonderful stuff. OK, then, Nick, superb. Let's have an object for the museum. The object is, uh, I have it in, in my flat, is um, the old telephone from the press box where I used to commentate at Carlisle United. It's an old-fashioned dial phone, you know, proper telephone. And that was the phone we used to use. The away reporter would use that. And, and I, there was one memorable night when my colleague Derek Lacey, bless him, um, got himself tangled up in the telephone line doing a, a report for Radio Sheffield. It was a game against Doncaster Rovers, and he nearly garroted himself. Um, and it's, I mean, Radio Cumbria still have the audio of this. And I was just left. It was a bit of a Brian Johnson moment, you know, in the cricket when with um, Jonathan Agnew when I was just left helpless. I just couldn't continue commentating because I was laughing my head off so much. I mean, which was, which was cruel of me because he was virtually strangling himself. So we, we almost had our first strangulation on air. But um, so I have the telephone with which he tried to strangle himself. Yeah. I still have that old telephone because when they were, um, when we were getting new lines put in and whatever, the telephone was going to be thrown out. And I thought, I'm not going to lose this. This is, a, this is yeah. part of my commentary history, if you like. So I, I've kept the old telephone from the commentary box at Brunton Park. Brilliant stuff. Well, after all this hard thinking, people are going to be hungry, they're going to be thirsty. Do you have a snack and or drink you'd like us to sell in the museum cafe? Drinks, in, in one sense, are limited because, you know, you get to a game, it's either a coffee or a tea or maybe a bottle. Mm-hmm. When I was thinking about this, I'm thinking, you know, there's one thing that's become a bit of a tradition at the, at the Stadium of Light now when at home games is at half time. Kevin Wagner, who's the press room steward, always brings up a cup of tea for the beginning of the second half. So I, I thought about it, I thought, well, yeah, that's a tradition. 
that's something I always look forward to on a cold winter's afternoon is Kevin coming up the stairs with everybody's yeah. drinks. I would nominate Kevin Wagner's half-time <laughs> cup of tea. <laughs> he has to therefore work in the museum cafe, but I think, well, I think, he'd, like, I think he'd he enjoy that. I think door. he'd enjoy it. <laughs> you have been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. 